Well, thank you. It's good to be back here again. Privilege to worship together with you, and now to be able to open God's Word and speak His message to you here this morning. So if you haven't already, please open with me in God's Word to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Luke 10, this morning we'll be looking at verses 25 to 37. And while you're turning there, uh, wonder, what comes to your mind when you think of family vacations? Now for me, It meant spending hour after hour after hour after hour on the road. And back then, we didn't have smartphones, we didn't have tablets, we didn't have portable DVD players, uh, we didn't have Nintendo Switches. We had the window. And you'd look out the window and try to see anything interesting as time would pass. And one of the games that Uh, we'd play in my family, is we'd be looking at the license plates of the cars around us to see how many states uh, we could identify of of the the people driving around. But I remember once when I was younger, uh, on the back of of one of the bumpers was a sticker. And uh, the sticker had this cartoon man with a halo over his head. And underneath it said, Good Sam Club. And I had no idea about this club, Uh, so I asked my dad, who was driving, uh, what's this Good Sam Club? My dad said, well, you know, in the Bible, there was this man who helped people in need, and so they're they're probably committed, if if, if people need help at the side of the road, to to go over and help them out. Well, for those of you who are familiar with the Good Sam Club, it's actually a club for those who have recreational vehicles and travel the country. Uh, so that they can find places to stay and receive discounts. So it's a little bit different than, than what he thought. Uh, but the point is, our country and, and our culture is just filled with the story of the Good Samaritan. After all, we have Good Samaritan hospitals. We have politicians who will encourage us to live like the Good Samaritan in our communities. We even have Christian ministries named after the story, like Samaritan's Purse. But here's my question. While we may be familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, how well do we really understand the story of the Good Samaritan? Why did Jesus give this parable in the first place? Well, this morning, I want us to look again at this parable to see if we may have missed something in our familiarity with the story. So, let's read together then Luke 10, beginning with verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, "'Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?' He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, 
And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. That's right. The third one. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. But before we continue, brothers and sisters, let us return to the throne of God in prayer. Oh, Lord, what a privilege and a blessing it is for us to gather in your presence as your people this morning. And now as we turn our attention and continuing to worship you by hearing your word, may we receive these truths. Lord, remove from us any and all distractions so that your Holy Spirit can powerfully work in each one of our minds and hearts and souls so that we can not only hear afresh the truths of this parable from the mouth of Jesus, that we can live in light of these truths, glorifying you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, what is Jesus communicating to us in this parable? What I'm going to do is, is give you the, the, the statement that I think summarizes well the point and then I want to go on to prove to you this, because the, 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 the truth is, what I say may sound strange, you may wonder how I'm getting that from the parable, but by the end, I hope you can see how central this is to what Jesus is saying. So, for, uh, the, 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 to summarize the statement then, as radical and as simple as it may sound, Jesus is saying, you will never justify yourself but your justification has come through another. You will never justify yourself, but your justification has come through another. And we see this through three truths in these verses. First, the danger of self-justification. Second, the display of self-love. And then third, the denial of self-reliance. So again, the danger of self-justification, the display of self-love, and the defeat of self-reliance. So let's now look more closely at these verses with the first truth given in verses 25 to 29, the danger of self-justification. And we begin here by seeing that there is a lawyer who stands up. And you should think of a lawyer like we think of lawyers today in a courtroom before a judge, okay? This is a lawyer because he is a Jewish scribe. He would be an expert in the Old Testament law. 
So he devotes himself to studying the Scriptures, specifically the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So it's this expert in the law who stands up to ask Jesus a question. And the question is, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This is the question that leads to everything that follows. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? But if you notice, he doesn't ask this question sincerely, does he? He doesn't really want to hear what Jesus has to say. Because we read that when he stands up, he stands up to put him to the test. The lawyer here wants to test Jesus. After all, he is the expert in the law, while Jesus is the imposter. So this lawyer essentially thinks he can trap Jesus and refute Jesus with his expertise in the Jewish Scriptures. He's trying here to set Jesus up through asking this question. Well, how then does Jesus respond? He asked some questions himself in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus here uses what we uh, often know today as the Socratic method, right? The, the ancient uh, philosopher Socrates uh, believed that it, it, it's better to learn not through simply having somebody instruct you in the truth, but rather to ask questions so that they themselves can discover the truth. And so Jesus essentially says to this lawyer, well, you are the expert in the law. How would you answer your own question? What does the law say? And the lawyer responds by quoting what all the, all the Jewish people knew as the Shema. Uh, there from Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19 there in verse 27 where he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. But think about what this means. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your, your, your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This takes our entire being as we as we think and, 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 and seek to live out these truths, this high calling that God requires of us as His image bears. But we need to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, why did God give us the law? Why did God give the law? And the Apostle Paul answers this question in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 11. So in Romans 7, Paul writes, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And he goes on to say, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the reason that God gave us His law is to expose our sinfulness, to show us how sinful we are, because we are all born in rebellion against God, deserving His judgment against us as His wrath is poured out. 
because we have failed to live up to God's high and holy standard. So notice, the lawyer's answer to Jesus is correct. This is actually what Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospels we are to do, which is why they're often called the the greatest commandments that summarize the law of God. They, They summarize the whole duty of mankind. So Jesus responds in verse 28 by saying to the lawyer, yes, you are correct. You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, What should the answer or the response of the lawyer have been here to Jesus? Lord Jesus, nobody can do this. I couldn't possibly do this. This is impossible for fallen, sinful creatures like me. If this is what God requires of me, do I have any hope? How then can I possibly inherit eternal life? But this isn't how the lawyer responds, is it? No, we see his response in verse 29, where we read, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, if you write in your Bibles or take notes, you want to underline or highlight that phrase, desiring to justify himself, because it's that phrase that provides the key that unlocks the meaning of Jesus' parable. See, the problem with the lawyer is he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to calm his conscience by not having the full weight and burden of the law on him so that he could say that he's kept the law. So in order to justify himself, this lawyer asked Jesus a question, and who is my neighbor? Because if I must love my neighbor as myself in order to gain eternal life, who is he? This would have been something the Jews of the day would have debated because they saw some ambiguity there in Leviticus, and so they would discuss this question. But you see, the lawyer was trying to reduce the law to a keepable level. So he's trying to then draw Jesus here into this Jewish discussion. But it reminds us of my family years ago when, when our children were younger. Uh, we'd often in our family worship use a, a catechism, right? A series of questions and answers that you would use to have your children memorize and, and, and learn biblical truths. Well, in, what, in, in our catechism, one of the questions was, who is your neighbor? And our children were supposed to answer, everybody is my neighbor. But the second we recognize that everybody is my neighbor, we see the impossibility of keeping this command. Who could possibly love everybody as themselves? You have to look no farther than how you treat the neighbors around you. Are you loving them as you love yourself? So here we see the pride of this lawyer who thought that he could keep the law of God, especially as one who's supposedly an expert in the law. But before we continue, I ask you this morning, 
are you that different from the lawyer? What do you think you must do in order for God to be satisfied with you? Do you think your relationship with God depends on how you live, in how much time you're spending in the Bible, in in how sincerely devoted you are in your times of prayer, and how regularly you come to the church here on Sundays? See, in all these ways, you can seek to justify yourself because you're seeking God's love through what you do. The truth is, we're just like the lawyer because we want to justify ourselves. And so we see here the danger of self justification. But then we move on to the second truth here in verses 30 to 35 with the display of self love. This is where we come to the parable of the Good Samaritan itself. But notice that Jesus does not directly respond to the lawyer. He doesn't confront the lawyer over his desire to justify himself. Rather, he confronts the lawyer through telling him a story. See, it's through the story that this story will convict and confront the lawyer. So Jesus realizes the lawyer doesn't need more information as if he doesn't already have the truth, but the lawyer needs humility. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is given so that this proud lawyer will be humbled. And as the story begins, Jesus speaks of a man who walks down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this road was about 17 miles long, and in that distance would descend about 3,000 feet. It was surrounded by deserts and rocks and caves, which would make it a very dangerous place for people to travel, especially at night. Thieves would hide and come out. So the story begins when the man's worst fears are realized, because he runs into some robbers, and they strip him, beat him, and depart from him, leaving him half dead. But don't miss the severity of what has happened. You know, it's not as if he could have gotten up, dusted himself off a little bit, and continued down the road. No, he was dying. He was hopeless. Apart from somebody coming to help him, there was nothing he could do. He would die. So at this point in the story... We're left asking ourselves, is there any hope for this robbed man? Well, then Jesus speaks of a priest who's coming down the road. And a priest, you may remember, is one that was appointed by God to represent the Jewish people in the temple through their worship that took place there. So he is the one that would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And it's likely that because he was coming from Jerusalem, where he would have served as a priest, heading down toward Jericho, where many of the priests lived, that he had just completed his time worshiping God at the temple. So you would think that after months of worshiping God and representing God's people, that his heart may be a little tender and sensitive to one that's in need there at the side of the road. Yet, of course, we read what happens next. 
Not only is he unmoved when he sees the robbed man, not only does he fail to help the robbed man, but he actually moves to the other side of the street to avoid any contact with the robbed man. So again, the story is being told and we ask ourselves, is there any hope for this robbed man? And then Jesus speaks of yet another one who is walking down the road, this time a Levite. And the Levites were those set apart by God to essentially be assistants to the priests. So they were essentially there to help in the worship of God at the temple. Will there be any difference then with the Levites? Of course, we all know what happens next. He also passes by. Together then, the priest and the Levite here represent Judaism. Because both fail to love this dying man. And we're left wondering, will there be anybody who will give this man any hope of surviving? Will anyone help this man who is desperately in need and close to death? And now we hear of another man who's coming down the road, a Samaritan. Now it's hard to communicate the shock that we are all supposed to feel right now at this point in the story. Because Samaritans were despised by Jews. Samaritans were half-breeds. They used to be part of Israel in the United Kingdom, but they had corrupted their worship of God by sacrificing to idols in the northern part of the country. And then they intermarried the, the local peoples around them, which meant they were under God's judgment and were judged by God through Assyria in 722 B.C. So these Samaritans wouldn't be true believers at all. They'd been forsaken by God as far as the Jews were concerned, and they were under God's judgment because they practiced a corrupted and false system of worship. So for a Jew to associate with a Samaritan would be worse than a Jew eating pork. You would be unclean. Jews then were to avoid all contact with the Samaritans. But let me try to update this a bit and bring it up to today. Let's say after church, we hear of a man on Main Street who's been robbed and pistol-whipped and he's laying on the side of the road, bleeding and bruised and close to death. And then a pastor from Mount Vernon Baptist Church, sorry Matt, is walking down the road. And your pastor passes on by. And then one of your deacons is walking down Main Street. And aren't the deacons those? who are supposed to help those in need? But one of your own church's deacons passes on by. And then a Marxist Black Lives Matter protester walks down Main Street. And he's the one who shows compassion. And you go, look, they just left a church preaching a false gospel of liberation theology, Lord. They are those 
who have been involved in rioting and looting in the cities. The Black Lives Matter organization is seeking to undermine what God has given us in marriage and tried to affirm all kinds of sexual immorality in our society. And this is the one, Lord, whom you're upholding as having compassion? Yes. Yes, it's the Samaritan who has compassion. It's the Samaritan who finally helps this man who is in need. And we see all that he does for him there in verse 34. Do you see the immense sacrifice of the Samaritan who is on a journey here? He goes to him, binds his wounds, which means he likely had to tear his clothes to come up with the bandages to cover the wounds. And then he takes from his own provision of food and drink, of oil and wine. The oil would have eased the pain. The alcohol and the wine would have been used to cleanse the wounds, which meant that he was depriving himself of refreshment on his journey in order to help the robbed man. But after he does these things, he puts him on his animal, which means he has to walk the rest of the way to the city. And once he gets into town, the Samaritan doesn't simply drop him off at the, locus, uh, at, at the local ER to let the professionals take care of it, does he? No, he personally stays with the man. He checks him into an inn and begins to nurse this man back to health himself. What compassion we see in the Samaritan, the, the compassion he has for this stranger. Well, the next day, of course, the Samaritan needs to continue on his journey And so he pays the innkeeper to house and take care of the robbed man until he recovers. And this is where we get the idea of the Samaritan's purse. Because he essentially takes out two denarii from his purse to pay the innkeeper. Uh, But a denarius, you may remember, is about worth about a day's wage. And the going fare for room and board at an inn of the day would have been about one-twelfth of a denarius which means that the Samaritan pays for almost a month of room and board at the end. But that's not all. Because he says that if there is any more expense, this man will pay nothing. He is not responsible for one cent. Because he promises, I will come back and pay for it myself. The Samaritan promises to pay for it all. But as we come to the end of the story, brothers and sisters, here's the problem we run into. We're used to thinking about this parable as we've always heard it, as it's often recorded in our children's storybook Bibles, where you have the cartoon characters of a man who's hurt, he's laying at the side of the road, and then you you have a man walking down the road with his arms folded and a frown on his face, and he just passes on by. And you have another man again arms folded, he has a frown on his face, he's passing on by. And then you have this man who's happy and he's walking down and, and, and he's the one that has compassion. And what then is the moral of the story? Be like the good Samaritan. Be like the good Samaritan. But Jesus here is making the very opposite point. He's saying we are not like the good Samaritan. 
but that we are like the priest and the Levite. That we are not the Good Samaritan because we have failed to show this compassion on our neighbor. After all, we have neighbors, coworkers, family members that have needs, both physical and spiritual. And what do we spend our time doing? Watching TV, surfing the internet, spending time with family, all while we ignore our neighbors in their time of need. We fail to be the neighbor that God has called us to be. But let's go further. We know that our next-door neighbors, our coworkers, our family members are our neighbors, but who do you not see as your neighbor? Who are those you try to avoid being around, like the priest and the Levite who go to the opposite side of the road? Do you see how we have all failed to be the neighbor that God calls us to be? Which is why the parable is a display of self-love. So, we've seen the danger of self-justification, then the display of self-love, but finally, in verses 36 to 37, we come to the defeat of self-reliance. Because here, Jesus finishes this parable and confronts the lawyer by asking him a question. We read, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the one who fell among the robbers? Well, at this point, of course, what else could the lawyer say? He knows what Jesus was teaching through this parable. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say it was the Samaritan. He couldn't even bring the word Samaritan to his lips. No, he simply says it was the one who showed the man mercy. And so Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, there's one thing I'm absolutely certain of here, and that's when Jesus says, go and do likewise, he's not telling the lawyer, try harder. He's not saying to him, yes, you have failed to be like the Good Samaritan, so try harder, do more, get out of your comfort zone, and get the job done so that you can inherit eternal life. No. When Jesus says, go and do likewise, he is continuing to seek the full weight and burden of the law to come upon the lawyer. So he's saying, go and do likewise, but you can't. He's repeating what he told the lawyer in verse 28 that's been then reinforced with the conviction of the truth of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So the lawyer failed to be what God requires him to be. And we have failed to be what God requires us to be. But listen, it's in this recognition that we find our hope. Because once we recognize that we ourselves are the priest and the Levite, that we can begin to see ourselves as the robbed man. You see, we are the robbed man left for dead, because we are the robbed man who is spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. We are the robbed man who, because of our sins, is under the judgment of God and facing death under His wrath. 
But who do we see coming down the road? Who comes down from the road from heaven to earth itself? But Jesus Christ, who has compassion on us as sinners. Jesus Christ is our good Samaritan. After all, do you remind it, or do you remember what the Jews accused Jesus of in John chapter 8? Listen, in John 8, verse 18, we read that they said to him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Well, praise God, Christ is our Samaritan, our good Samaritan. That's why the Apostle Paul writes of Christ in Philippians 2, that Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be crass, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus becomes a substitute for us. He was stripped. He was beaten. But he wasn't left for dead because the wages of sin is death itself. So he actually died in our place, taking the punishment and wrath we deserve upon himself at the cross. He is the one who died. So that in our being united to him by faith, we then will be justified and declared righteous before God, that we will be those who receive and inherit eternal life. So we are justified, we are declared righteous because we are united to Christ. What an awesome picture of Christ then He gives us here as the one who has compassion for us. Is it any surprise then that one of the most Beloved verses in all of Scripture is John 3.16, where we read, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So I ask you, do you recognize yourself as the robbed man? Are you one that needs to be healed by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross? Because it's Christ who has compassion on sinners, who takes what we deserve so that our souls will be healed and we will then be restored to health by His grace. Listen, by His stripes, by His cross, you are healed. So in this parable, we find a contrast between those who are supposed to be the neighbor and failed with the one who is the true neighbor and succeeds. By nature, I am one of the two men that pass by. But by grace, I am the robbed man who through my neighbor has been healed through my good Samaritan, Jesus Christ. So I no longer need to justify myself. Because my justification has come through another. Isn't that beautiful? You no longer need to justify yourself because your justification has come through another. Recognize then the danger of self-justification. 
Remember the display of self-love and rejoice then in the defeat of self-reliance. But receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Because when we trust in Him, we are justified before God, declared righteous in His sight, and will inherit eternal life. Listen, if you do not know that Jesus Christ is your good Samaritan here this morning, receive His compassion, His cleansed, the cleansing blood to cover your sin. Come to Christ as the one who so loves you. He offers Himself to be stripped and beaten and die. Come to Christ by turning from your sins and turning to Him by faith. Because in Christ, you will inherit eternal life. And there is no need for self-justification. Listen, for those of us who are in Christ, we can continue to struggle with this problem. We can continue to think that how God sees me depends on how I live. And what we once again see is as sinful as we may remain, Christ has compassion on us and continues to work in us through the Holy Spirit to restore us to what God created us to be until the day when He returns and we will be resurrected to glory. And so we renew our faith in Christ daily then, living our lives in light of Christ because it's in Him that we have been justified So I may have failed to be the neighbor that God has called me to be, but God has given me my true neighbor, my good Samaritan, Jesus Christ. And you too can receive His compassionate love and care. So that when our good Samaritan heals us through His death on the cross, we are then saved from our sin and inherit eternal life. And by having the Holy Spirit then in our hearts, Listen, we will more and more become like our Good Samaritan as we follow in His footsteps and love and take care of our neighbors in need. This is why the parable of Good Samaritan has been precious to so many through the centuries. And this includes a a, a man that many of us are familiar with in England named John Newton. Now, John Newton was a slave trader who, for many years, was there in England until he was arrested by the compassion of Christ and was saved by the blood of Christ so that he became one that sought to defeat and bring to an end the practice of slavery in England. But it's why he wrote the famous hymn so many of us sing today, Amazing Grace. It's because he knew Christ is his good Samaritan. But do you know how precious he considered this story? He actually wrote a hymn about it as well, and unfortunately, you're not going to find it in any of your hymn books today. 
But listen to the words that John Newton, the, the, the author of Amazing Grace, pens in this hymn, How Kind the Good Samaritan. How kind the good Samaritan to him who fell among the thieves. Just thus Jesus pities fallen man and heals the wounds the soul receives. Oh, I remember well the day when sorely wounded, nearly slain, like that poor man I bleeding lay and groaned for help, but groaned in vain. Men saw me in this helpless case and passed without compassion by. Each neighbor turned away his face, unmoved by my mournful cry. But as he whose name has been my scorn, as Jews Samaritans despise, came when he saw me thus forlorn with love and pity in his eyes. Gently he raised me from the ground, pressed me to lean upon his arm, and into every gaping wound he poured his own all-healing balm. Unto his church my steps he led, the house prepared for sinners lost, gave charge I should be clothed and fed, and took upon him all the cost. The safe from death, from want secured, I wait till again he shall come, when I shall be completely cured and take me to his heavenly home. There through eternal boundless days, when nature's wheel no longer rolls, how shall I love, adore, and praise this good Samaritan to souls? Oh, may we all look to this good Samaritan to souls, Jesus Christ, today and every day. He has compassion on us and loves us so that we indeed look forward to the restoration that He will bring when we inherit eternal life. Let us pray.